Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. Born in 1921, he was well known throughout the world for his writings and godly influence in the global church. Stott passed away July 27, 2011. He leaves behind a legacy that continues to expand through the power of God's Word. John Stott dedicated his life and earnings to seed and grow the ministry of Langham Partnership. Today, John Stott presents a study on tension between holiness and worldliness, recorded on January 1st, 1969. This is a series of talks entitled Tensions in Christian Experience. We began by considering the tension between submission to Christ's authority on the one hand and the freedom with which Christ makes us free on the other. Today I want to bring you another tension, and I will call it the tension between holiness and worldliness. I think we need to see this Christian tension against the background of a number, number of contemporary questions. The sort of questions that people are asking today, or many people at least, in and out of the church are asking today, are these. What is the Christian attitude to the secular? Indeed, is there any valid distinction between the sacred and the secular? For if the word sacred means belonging to God, and if the word secular means belonging to the world, isn't everything secular in reality sacred? And isn't there even a sense in which everything sacred is in a sense secular? Didn't God make the world? And if so, how can you put God and the world, or the sacred and the secular, in watertight compartments? Aren't many Christians guilty of a kind of spiritual schizophrenia, living a double life, one life in the church, and another and altogether different life in the world? What is the relation of the church to the world? What is the relation of the church to the so-called secular? Now these are important questions to which we need to address our minds. Let's take the word secular and its various cognates. I have myself found it helpful uh, through reading other people's uh, books to distinguish in a rough and ready way between the two words secularization on the one hand and secularism on the other. Secularization, at least in one form, is a process by which in certain areas of life the intrusion of the church is rejected. You can, for example, talk of the secularization of education, which is a process by which education has been taken out of the hands of the church in many countries and put exclusively into the hands of the state. That secularization, a process by which the intrusion of the church is rejected. Secularism, on the other hand, is a philosophy it's a philosophy in which, in certain areas of thought, 
the intrusion of God is rejected. You can talk, for example, of scientific secularism. Scientific secularism is a philosophy which regards the universe as a closed system with no room for God either in it or outside and beyond it. Here then are two different words, two different concepts. The first, the process of secularization, Christians cannot, and I think to a great extent should not, resist. There is no particular reason why the church should not hand over to the state many of the good works which the church itself pioneered in the welfare services, in medicine, even to some extent in education, provided the state does the work which is entrusted to it. So this process of secularization is not a process which in itself must be resisted by Christians. The second, however, this philosophy of secularism, Christians can and must resist. We cannot agree to allow God to be bowed out of his own universe. There are, however, some modern theologians who do not appear to accept this. They want even to secularize Christianity. We find them particularly in the United States of America, but not exclusively there. They're often referred to as the secular theologians. For example, in 1963, Paul Van Buren, a secular theologian in America, published a book called The Secular Meaning of the Gospel. Two years later, in 65, Harvey Cox, another American author, wrote The Secular City. Then, in Great Britain, R. Gregor Smith, the following year, wrote a book called Secular Christianity. And the same year, Colin Williams published his Faith in a Secular Age. So one could go on. E. L. Maskell, the orthodox uh, Anglo-Catholic writer in England, has written a book in 65 called The Secularization of Christianity, and John Macquarie, God and Secularity. Now, I only mention these uh, six or seven books to show that the word secular is creeping into a great many book titles as people are wrestling with this problem today. Now, the secular theologians are attempting to secularize Christianity in different ways, but they are all at one in the rejection of traditional religion. They are advocates of what is called a religionless Christianity. They don't believe in worship, they don't believe in prayer or in meditation any longer. They only believe in social and political action. The sphere of concern of the secular theologians is the city, not the church, the world, not the church. They've abandoned all other worldliness for a thoroughgoing this-worldliness. They've given up metaphysics in favor of politics. They've abandoned worship services in Gothic cathedrals for action service in the Negro ghettos. Or in a word, they've abandoned the sacred for the secular, life in the church for life in the world. Against this background, this ferment of modern thought in the church, 
we ask our question today, what is the relation between holiness and worldliness? What is the Christian's attitude to the secular? Let me now read to you some words of Jesus himself, as recorded in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, in which we find him praying his great prayer. I'd like to read to you John 17, verses 9 to 18. Jesus said, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. All mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to thee. Holy Father, keep them in thy name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in thy name which thou hast given me, I have guarded them, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not pray that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Behind these remarkable words of Jesus in his prayer, there lie two truths which he seems quite clearly to have recognized. Let's see if we can grasp them at the beginning. First, he presupposed the existence of two distinct communities. One of these communities he called the world. The other community, his own followers, he described as those whom God has called out of the world and given to him. Thus, verse 6, I've manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Verse 9, I'm praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me. Uh, we're clear, aren't we, about this? I mean, it's quite obvious in the words of Jesus. Here are two distinct communities. On the one hand, the world, and on the other, those whom God has called out of the world. And the whole Bible from the call of Abraham onwards, recognizes the existence of these two communities. God's purpose from Abraham onwards has been to call out of the world a people for himself. Sometimes these two communities are spoken of in terms of two kingdoms, a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness the kingdom of God, which is the sphere of his rule, and the kingdom of the devil, the sphere of his rule. Or sometimes these communities are spoken of as two cities, symbolized by the great city Babylon on the one hand, and the holy city Jerusalem on the other. We could even say that the whole story of the Bible is a tale of two cities, 
Babylon and Jerusalem, the world and the church, and it simply does not help to blur the distinction between these two communities. That's the first thing. The second thing Jesus presupposed in this passage is that there is a state of tension existing between the two communities. Indeed, in his thought and language, it's more than a tension, it's an active hostility on the part of the world towards the church. Verse 14, I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. You see, here are the two communities, the world and they, and the world hates them. So, because the church does not belong to the world, the world hates the church as it hated Christ. All right, that's the background. Two communities, the world and the church, distinct from one another and in conflict or tension with one another. And it's against this background that Jesus prays. He prays, he says, verse 9, I'm praying for them. That is my own people. I am not praying for the world. And he prays for them who've been chosen out of the world, particularly because he himself is now leaving them behind. So now at last we come to our crucial question, what is the purpose of Christ for the church in relation to the world? And I bring you three major propositions from this prayer of Jesus. The first proposition is from verse 15, where Jesus says, I do not pray that thou shouldest take them out of the world. In other words, the proper reaction of the church to the world is not one of withdrawal. Withdrawal is not the way to ease the tension between the church and the world. This was the reaction of the Pharisees, the very word Pharisees meaning separatists. And Jesus did not want his followers to be a species of Christian Pharisee. And yet I fear that Christian Pharisaism, the separatism from the world, has been quite common down the Christian ages, and of course understandably so. Sometimes it was fear of persecution, sometimes the risk of contamination, which led Christian people to separate too much from uh, the society of non-Christian people. It was this that led the hermits to flee to the desert in the fourth century. And the development of monasticism is another example which came a little later. Although one must concede that the monasteries kept Christian culture alive during the dark days when the barbarians overran much of Europe, Yet monasticism is a withdrawal from the world and therefore a denial of our Christian calling. The spirit of monasticism lingers still today. Some Christian fellowships are really monasteries, although without any visible walls or without the monastic name. But is it not true that some Christian churches are enclosed communities and clergy ordained ministers are often the worst of all. Indeed, we really can't talk because we're cut off a great deal from secular society. I think one must agree that the motivation of a lot of modern secular Christianity is reaction against the exaggerated pietism, the exaggerated withdrawal of much Christianity. 
and these secular Christians have reacted sharply against a religion divorced from life in the world. They have reacted against religious people whose preoccupation has been with another world and has been such a preoccupation that they seem to contract out of all responsibility for this world. If you doubt this, let me take as an example our Christian hymnody. An otherworldly preoccupation is expressed in many of our Christian hymns. Listen to this. There is a land of pure delight where saints immortal reign. Infinite day excludes the night and pleasures banish pain. Well, fair enough. Thank God for it. It's true. But by contrast with these many hymns about heaven, do you know there are hardly any hymns about Christian duty in this world? We ought to sing more often something like this. There's another land, impure and base, where human beings fight in strife of war and class and race, and wrongs outweigh the right. And the question is, which of these two worlds concerns us the more? Are we so preoccupied with heaven that we have no preoccupation with this world? God made this world. He made man on it. He intends men and women to live together in community. Marriage and the home, government and the law, the week of work and the day of rest are all institutions of God. We cannot secularize these. The question is whether we're applying our Christianity to them. So every Christian should consider Christ's prayer and say, Jesus did not pray that God should take me out of the world. So have I effectively taken myself out so that I no longer live in the world or care about the world? Or am I, on the other hand, deeply concerned with this world and involved in its life and its pain. That then is the first proposition. Jesus did not pray that we should be taken out of the world. Secondly, Jesus did pray that we should be kept from the evil or from the evil one. If the solution to this tension is not withdrawal from the world, it is not conformity to the world either. Christ's prayer was not that we should be removed from the world, but that we should be kept from the evil. Yet this second option, the option of conformity to the world, is understandably attractive also, and there are high motives which have animated Christians in their conformity. Anxious not to be cut off from their contemporaries, anxious not to appear standoffish, anxious to break down barriers and not to erect them, anxious to be the friend of publicans and sinners, as Jesus Christ himself was. Some Christians have sought to be assimilated to the world in its outlook and its behavior. But Jesus prayed against this also. Don't remove them out of the world, he prayed, but keep them from the evil. Indeed, if we may look into this at a little greater length, in verse 11 his prayer is, Keep them in thy name. And again, verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in thy name. 
Now, the name of God is the revelation of God, the revelation of his nature. And so to keep them in his name is a prayer that their minds, the minds of Christian people, may be kept in the revelation that God had given of himself. Verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name. So this is a prayer that God would deliver his people from adopting the ideas of the world and preserve them in the truth that Christ had revealed to them. A similar prayer is in verse 15, keep them from the evil. That is, they're no more to adopt the world's ethics than they are to adopt the world's philosophy. In mind and life, in thinking and behaving, Christian disciples are to be kept, to be preserved from error on the one hand and from evil on the other. Now, let's look back over the first two propositions. We've seen that in, in view of Christ's prayer for us, we have no liberty either to withdraw from the world or to conform to the world. We cannot escape the tension of which we're all conscious, either by opting out or by giving in. Neither is the Christian way of easing the tension. Every Christian must live in the world, but must remember that he's not of the world. Or, in the language of the Apostle Paul, writing, for example, to the Colossians, he can begin uh, his letter addressing himself to those who are in Christ, in Colossae. You see, every Christian's got two homes, in Christ, in Colossae, in Christ, in London, in Christ, in Manchester, whatever it is. Some people are so anxious to be in Christ that they withdraw from London or from Colossae or Manchester, wherever it is. Others are so anxious to live in Colossae, in the world, that they conform to the world and withdraw from Christ. But the Christian way is to be in Christ, in Colossae, in the same measure and at the same time. Our Christian calling is to stay in the world while remaining distinct from it. So far, in my talk to you, I've been largely negative, that on the one hand we are not to escape from the church-world tension by eliminating it, whether by withdrawal or by conformity. But our Christian duty is not done when we have avoided these two pitfalls of withdrawal and conformity. That brings me to my third proposition, which is taken from verse 18, where Christ says, I have sent them into the world. The Christian is not just uh, to live in the world, he is to go into the world. He's not to be a resident merely, but an ambassador or a missionary. Further, Jesus gave us the pattern of his own example. He says, as the Father sent me, so I send them. How did the Father send the Son? Well, Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And in particular, he came to seek and to save the lost. In order to do so, he entered the world, our world. He didn't attempt to perform his mission from a distance, any more than the Apollo mission could be fulfilled without an actual landing on the moon. But Jesus did more than land on the earth, if I may use that expression. Let me pursue this distinction a little bit. The Apollo astronauts took with them to the moon all the accoutrements of the earth. 
They took with them Earth's oxygen, Earth's food, Earth's clothing, Earth's instruments. They couldn't have survived on the moon without these things. But when Jesus landed on the earth, as it were, he did not bring heaven's accoutrements with him. He brought nothing with him except himself. He assumed earth's instead. He took human flesh upon him. He lived a human earthly life. He took our human sin upon him when he died. He identified himself with us in our life and in our need. And so he says, as the Father sent me into the world, so send I you into the world. This principle of the Incarnation is part and parcel of the Christian mission in the world. We are charged to go into the world, not just to move our bodies from one place to another, but to penetrate deeply into their mind and thought, to learn their language and their culture, to share their sorrows and their sufferings, to take upon us their flesh and their life and their blood as Jesus Christ did when he came into this world. Now we look back over what we've learned and conclude. The Christian calling is threefold. It's first a calling to worldliness in the sense of living in the world and not withdrawing from it. Second, it is a calling to holiness in the sense of being kept from the evil and from being conformed to the world in our thinking or living. Thirdly, it is a calling to mission in the sense of going into the world to serve, to seek and to save, not being content with just a passive residence. And three prepositions can summarize our threefold calling. The Christian is in the world, he is not of the world, he is sent into the world. And Jesus Christ is our perfect example. He was hated by the world because he wasn't of it. Yet first he stayed in it. He did not withdraw from it. Secondly, he remained pure, holy, distinct. He never conformed to the ways of the world. Thirdly, he served his generation. He lived, suffered, and died for others. He did not remain aloof. So I conclude, we cannot escape this tension. All through our Christian life, we shall have to walk this knife edge between holiness and worldliness. And the best way to endure the tension between the first two is to concentrate on the third that if we are determined to go into the world, to serve the world, then we must remain both in it on the one hand and not of it on the other. If we should either withdraw from the world or conform to the world, it would be impossible to serve the world as the true ambassadors of Christ, which he's called us to be. So may Christ enable us to live in the world, to be not of it, but to serve it. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.